verses 23 through Acts chapter 19, verse 7. Acts chapter 18, verses 23 through 19.7. This passage chronicles the inception of Paul's third missionary journey after returning to Antioch. Antioch really was a beachhead city by which he began his missionary endeavors. <clears throat> he returns there. And then we will be meeting two groups of individuals. In his journey beginning in Acts 18:23. <clears throat> the text reads, "And having spent some time there, meaning Antioch, he left and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples." Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. When he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he was powerfully refuting the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John's baptism with, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying, there were in all about 12 men. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study once again. <clears throat> our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your enduring word, your word which endures forever. We pray, God, that you would once again grant to us understanding, illumine our minds, and help us, O oh Father, to see you, to understand your word, and I pray, God, that we might seek to know you more. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> when I was in my first year of seminary, in the early 90s, I met one of the most zealous incoming students 
in my entire life. If enthusiasm was from the Lord for the Lord measured on a scale of 1 to 10, he would be a 12. Had YouTube existed back then in the early 90s, he would have had hundreds of thousands of hits probably. He loved the Lord. He loved the Word of God. He was zealous for the truth. He was completely sold out for the Lord Jesus. He would sit right up front in all the classes, right in front of the professor, in the middle of the front row, feet from the professor, and asked plenty of questions, many of them which were very interesting. In our Old Testament survey class, we would be required in that 14-week period to read the entire Old Testament three times. And he would struggle to complete it because not only was he reading all the text, he was reading all the notes on every page. Not only that, he would find out what books were good, which commentaries were good, and he would go with us to take this trek out to this used bookstore back then called the Archives in Pasadena, and we would go, and he would buy entire sets, hundreds of dollars worth, and he didn't just use them for reference, he would read them. Go through and read them. Imagine your child buying the Encyclopedia Britannica and reading it. It wasn't just that. And as you know, books to a seminary student are like, you know, power tools for a construction worker or candy to a child. It was really, really a real treasure. And in preaching class, <clears throat> we'd have preaching lab, when it would come time for his turn to preach, he was probably one of the most interesting people to listen to. They would give you a slot of about 20 minutes. You know, this wasn't a full sermon. It was, they had lots of guys to go through. But if you were in this guy's lab and it was his turn, he would probably want to be almost one of the interesting people to listen to. He'd oftentimes pull out some book in which the author was completely off the rails and rail against him about how he was wrong and have all sorts of illustrations or be so passionate about him, he'd go on for 15 minutes in his introduction before he finally had five minutes left for his text, which made it very interesting but made his grade very poor. The problem was that he had come into seminary and he was a bit misguided because he had continued to adopt a part of the Old Testament law in his fervor. He came in and had taken a Nazarite vow. That vow can be found in Numbers chapter 6. Verse 1, where it says, again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or a woman takes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice or eat fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine, from the seeds even to the skin. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks of hair on his head grow long. And it goes on to talk about how he should stay away from people who have passed away and such. And so it goes on basically to say that, it, and so when he went to UCLA, and there's nothing to say against those who have gone to UCLA, at least for a while, he had not cut his hair, and he had bundled it and put it on a bundle atop of his head. He was so zealous to dedicate himself fully to the Lord. And it wasn't as if he had a long Jewish heritage or anything like that. He was Japanese. Well, 
The professors helped straighten him out in short order. And he became a good friend, and his zeal for the Lord was very, very contagious. And, you know, sometimes we see one another at a conference or something like that, and he's doing quite well. But today we see two cases, two cases here of Old Testament saints who were faithful to the knowledge by which they had given, but they needed to know, they needed to grow in the knowledge of who Christ was and what Christ had done, the role that they were to play there in the New Testament. Two cases of people who needed to grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus because they had not been fully informed about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and that of the Holy Spirit. They'd only been partially informed and this whole transition of one's understanding about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus, looking at Acts, it is a difficult transition, especially for the Jew to take. As we look at the entire book of Acts, it is a book in which they transition to a new paradigm, a new covenant in which this idea that now the church included non-Jews. It was a tremendous challenge for Jews. Because you see, in biblical times, being a Jew and the practice of Judaism wasn't just on Sundays. It wasn't like they could just go to another church and they have different practices and slightly different things on Sunday. No, being Jewish affected every part of your life. If you were a a Jew, you just read the Old Testament and you would come to the Mosaic Law and you could read all of the regulations related to sacrifices, to offerings, the things you would eat, the things you couldn't eat, what you'd do when you find mold and mildew in your clothes and your home, things that you'd do on the Sabbath or can't do, or motherhood and marriage and business relationships and all sorts of laws that they were to keep. It affected every part of their life. Not only would that be found in the Mosaic Law, but it would also be compounded by the teachings of the rabbis. They very much revered their rabbis. And so when the rabbis taught, they would make, uh, they would make these traditions. They would teach the application of the law in very much detail about things that they were to do. And they would revere their rabbis, and these things would be written down, and the oral law and the Talmud, and all of that would compound the number of things that they were already to follow in the law. And that's why these traditions and things like that become so burdensome to the people. That's why Jesus would say, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, for I will give you rest. Why weary and heavy laden? Because all of these things they needed to, they believed that they needed to keep in order to please God traditions and the laws that the Jews followed, all of that was a part of what it meant to be a Jew, ingrained in them, ingrained in them, and that whole transition of the idea, even as they became believers. The Apostle Peter had a hard time with this whole idea of the inclusion of the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 2, Peter had been filled with the Holy Spirit. He was a genuine believer But all the way to Acts chapter 10, God gives Peter a vision of this sheet that comes down. You recall a sheet with all of these animals in it. And he says to him, Acts chapter 10, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Now here's the time when God would audibly speak. With a booming voice, I'm thinking, get up, 
Peter kill and eat? And Peter says, no. Can you imagine that's defying a direct command of God? Quite bold how deeply ingrained it was such that he believed he would violate uh, the Old Testament laws. Yet the voice that says came 15, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. (coughs) This happened three times, it says. Immediately the object was taken up into the sky three times. And later, of course, he goes into this house of a Gentile named Cornelius, which again was a step outside of Jewish protocol, Jewish social protocol. You would never want him to step inside of a Gentile's home. You'd be considered unclean because they believed they were impure already. They'd be, in effect, touching a dead body. So during this transitional period, in the book of Acts, we see the struggle with the idea that the inclusion of non-Jews into the kingdom was a tremendous challenge for the Jews. They needed to grow in the knowledge and the work of the Lord Jesus so they could be fully informed in this transitional period, fully informed of the person, of the work of the Lord Jesus and that of the Holy Spirit. And here we see two cases of people who needed to grow in that knowledge of Christ and what he had done. There's first of all, Apollos, who's described here as one who was mighty in the Scriptures. That is the first individual we meet, verse 23. Have we spent some time there? <clears throat> he went through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthened his disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. <clears throat> Now, the scene here shifts back to Ephesus, where there's this Jew. He was a Jew whose name was Apollos. He was a learned man from Alexandria, which really compared to Athens. You recall Paul was in Athens, the the home of great thinkers and philosophers of, of Greek culture. But Alexandria rivaled Athens in its reputation for knowledge. The greatest library in the world was found in Alexandria. Alexandria was the home of Euclid and Philo. Alexandria was where the Septuagint, the Septuagint being the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was accomplished. There were a number of things about Alexandria. So Apollos had the world's resources, and he was a learned man, but there was a number of key characteristics of Apollos that were admirable. First of all, the text says that he was mighty in the Scriptures. He was mighty in the Scriptures. What does that mean? It means that he could handle the Word of God extremely well. He could handle the Word of God extremely well. In fact, later on in verse 28, it says he powerfully refuted the Jews in public. John Broadus is one of the founders of the Southern Baptist Seminary, author of one, a very influential book on preaching, one of the most perhaps influential in America. He's lecturing in his class just nine days before he passed away. And he said to these seminary students, he said, quote, gentlemen, if this were the last time I should ever be permitted to address you. I would feel amply repaid for consuming the whole hour, endeavoring to impress 
upon you two things, true piety and like Apollos to be men mighty in the scriptures. Then he stood for a moment and he looked at the class and over he would say, mighty in the scriptures, mighty in the scriptures, mighty in the scriptures. That is simply to say there is a great need for people today to handle the word of God well, to be able to defend the faith, to be able to be articulate. As many times I think we may be tempted to look at the Bible, or many people do, sort of like a internet search engine or WebMD where you look at the Bible in order to solve your problems. And you ask, how can I help myself? But this book is the revelation of God, which is about Him. It's more than just how can we improve our own lives. It's about His purposes, about His Son, about salvation, about His glory, about who Jesus is. There is a great need for Bible teachers today, people who are devoted to God, able to handle the Word of God. And that's an exhortation that is given to all of us. As Paul penned his very last letter before he was to pass away to Timothy, his protege in 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent, he tells him, to present yourself to approve to God. To present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. We need to be people who handle the word of God well, who handle accurately the word of God, who are people who are mighty in the scriptures. Secondly, it is said of Apollos, not only that he was mighty in the scriptures, but secondly, that he was a man who had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. Having come from Alexandria, he was a learned man, says he was an eloquent man. He was an educated man, educated in the scriptures, in the way of the Lord. Do you know that there was a trend, at least back in the 90s or so, and it probably is carried over in my guess, I'm not sure, but an active trend that if you were hiring somebody on staff at a church, you would avoid anyone who has any type of seminary education. There was a trend that was going on because of various reasons. I think some felt it was irrelevant, unnecessary, too expensive, waste of time, and disconnected people from the real needs of others. And so training was done by experience in the church, and they might have some, you know, in-house, some type of training, but anyone who went to seminary to train, whatnot, was, no, that wasn't, that wasn't, that was bad for you. Now, can you imagine if you're sick and you're going to your doctor and they decide, well, you know what, I, I don't need to pass my certification or exam or, you know, they're kind of learning along the way as they look at you and ask you a few questions. They trial and error with your pharmacist as which pill might work. Or you're in trouble with the law and the attorney that you hire decide, well, I don't really need to pass the bar exam. I know you're my second client. We'll just wing it and see what happens. You're their next experiment. To underscore this, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He was an educated man. And I think that it is important to be, if you're going to be mighty in the scriptures, 
Not everyone has the opportunity, but if afforded the opportunity, if given the opportunity, what a blessing it is to learn the Word of God, to be able to divide it rightly, to be able to communicate it well. Thirdly, he was fervent in spirit. Fervent in spirit. The word literally means burning or boiling hot. R. Kent Hughes says that this, he exemplified Lloyd-Jones, being D. Martin Lloyd-Jones' definition of logic on fire. In other words, he wasn't a dry bone. He wasn't some dull and boring individual. We can, some believe that this has to do with the Holy Spirit. I think it has more to do with his own heart, his own passion for God's glory, his own fervency. Fourthly, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. That is great. He's able to handle the word well, but being acquainted only with the baptism of John. The baptism of John. So his knowledge was incomplete. The baptism of John was merely a baptism of repentance that pointed someone to the coming Messiah. That's what it was. John the Baptist said this in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. He said, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, referring to Jesus. And I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And Jesus in Acts 1.5 tells us, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. John's was a baptism for those who were turning to God in repentance. And John was pointing them to the Messiah who would come, who would baptize them with the Holy Spirit. Apollos was only familiar with John's baptism, the baptism of repentance only. Now, he knew some things about Jesus, the text tells us, and what he knew he taught accurately, but he didn't know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He didn't know about Acts chapter 2. His knowledge was incomplete. So what happened? When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the word of God more accurately. That's what they did. In love and concern, they explained to him more accurately. They took him aside. There was no public scorn. They didn't berate him. They didn't scold him for his lack of knowledge about the Holy Spirit. He just didn't know. He just didn't know. And they, they just wanted to give him the latest update so that he would understand, so that he would be able to explain the Word of God more accurately. Now, what was Apollos not accurate about? He was inaccurate about, or his incomplete knowledge, I should say, was just that he only knew about the baptism of John. He didn't know about the Holy Spirit and <clears throat> what happened, as I mentioned in Acts chapter 2. But everything else seemed to be quite in order. He was mighty in the Scriptures. He was educated, instructed in the ways of the Lord, and he was accurate in his teaching. And I think we can assume here that Apollos was simply an Old Testament saint who had believed in Jesus the, 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 as far as he knew, but had not known about the baptism. Perhaps he didn't know quite about all that Jesus had done. He needed to learn. He needed to know more. And I think within this white space that is here, it's basically that 
Priscilla and Aquila explained the way and what Christ had done, his completed work, how he was going to baptize individuals in the Holy Spirit, and there he came to a fuller knowledge and received the Spirit of God. You know that incomplete knowledge is oftentimes things that we need to learn more, and our desire is to learn more, that we might know God more. I remember when I went to seminary many years ago, I, I, I'd grown up in the church and faithfully attending you know, service and Sunday school and fellowship, learning and growing, and I, I thought I had a pretty good working knowledge of the Bible. All of those years, I thought, and by the time I sat in the seminary classes, I got there, there were guys... There are guys who are sitting in the back row sometimes, and they were just asking questions I'd never even thought of, let alone even understand what they were asking. And the more I learned, the more I realized I needed to learn. And even now, I continue to learn as the Lord teaches me. And one of the joys of studying the Bible is that it's really inexhaustible, all of the things that we could learn. It's not just knowledge and information either, because one might have a tremendous amount of knowledge and a tremendous amount of information in one's head, but it's the teaching of one's heart and learning lessons in wisdom and learning lessons in character that are often the most difficult. So no matter how long you have been a Christian, there will always be the need to learn more, always to learn and always to teach our heart, always that God continues to mold our character what an example that even the mighty one in the scriptures sat and was teachable. Even the one who was the most eloquent here, the most eloquent and learned of pastors and professors need to learn as Apollos was humble. And he became a powerful blessing to the greater church body. Verse 27, he wanted to go across to Achaia. The brethren encouraged him, wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. All the more tools in his basket that he was using with his great knowledge that he was able to defend the faith, refute those who contradict, as Paul would encourage Timothy to do, handling the word of God accurately having come to a fuller knowledge of who Jesus was, continuing to learn, as we all should. The second group of people that Paul encounters here, or the text talks to us about, is the disciples of John, chapters 19, verse, chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. When Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country. He came to Ephesus and found some disciples. <clears throat> he said to them, do you... Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now, this is a very, very interesting passage. They had not even heard of the Holy Spirit. And he said to them, in what then were you baptized? And they said, into Paul's baptism. Paul said, John's Baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. They were in all about 12 men. During the late 1700s, the latter part of the 18th century, there were some colonists who left Virginia. 
They had left Virginia and they started through the mountains to settle the valleys that lay farther out west. But because of fear of Indians, fear of death of their horses or breaking down of a wagon, many of them decided just to stay in the mountains. And so for over 20 years, these settlers saw no one else. For 20 years. Until there was another group of travelers who came in to the area And naturally, when they saw them, they began to talk about what was happening outside in the world. And the travelers asked these mountaineers what they thought of the New Republic, what they thought of the Continental Congress. Their answer was, we have not so much as heard of a Continental Congress or Republic. They thought themselves as basically loyal subjects of the British king. They had not even heard of George Washington They had not heard of the Revolutionary War. They were on their own little time capsule, stuck in the past, similar to these individuals here, who had not even heard, they said, no, we have not heard whether there is a Holy Spirit when Paul runs into them. And the question that he asks is fascinating. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Interesting David Williams writes in the New International Biblical Commentary, he says, quote, his, meaning Paul's, criterion for what distinguished the Christian is significant. So too is the way in which his question is framed. It implies that the Holy Spirit is received at, the definite, at a definite point in time and that this is the moment of initial belief, the aorist participle being construed here as coincidental with the verb. The same thought is expressed, for example, in Ephesians 1.13. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. No space of time is envisaged between the two events, nor is the possibility entertained of believing without receiving the seal of the Spirit. And that's an important thought. In other words, he's communicating Paul's question implies that the point of belief comes the point of the reception of the Holy Spirit. Because this passage has been misused by some who will say, well, look, you can be a Christian without possessing the Holy Spirit. Or the Holy Spirit comes much later by virtue of this example. When we look at Ephesians 1.13, as was quoted in the commentary, it says, In him you also, after having listened to the message of the truth, the gospel of salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the spirit of promise. And Paul says to the Corinthian church, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. We were all made to drink of one spirit. And conversely, in Romans 8, 9, it tells us that if you don't have the Spirit, you aren't a part of the body of Christ. It says in Romans 8, 9, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, some will argue and say, well, look, the term disciples is used here. The term disciples is used here. They must be believers. Well, at least Christians, I should say, that's not necessarily true either. The word disciple simply means follower, simply means learner. We know that 
in the book of Mark 2.18, Luke 5.33, the Pharisees are said to have disciples. We also know that there's false disciples in John 6.66. Jesus has uh, fed the 5,000 and he begins teaching them some very difficult things. And it says there in John 6.66 that some of his disciples left him and followed him no longer. False disciples. Paul asked them, into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul explains what John's baptism is in verse 4. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And verse 5 is very interesting. It indicates that their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, after coming to a greater understanding of who He is and what He has done, came and they were baptized in His name. That's when they placed their faith in Him because they knew of the full work that He had done. And verse 6 indicates they received the Holy Spirit after that. And it tells us that they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So what gives here? Why, why this particular case? Why is it that the things that I just explained about the Holy Spirit being received right when you believed, well, it's exemplified here, but it seems to be that there's a little lag in time. Here were some Old Testament saints once again. And so the question is, why is there a lag? Other times being like Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, when the Holy Spirit comes upon believers subsequent to their faith in Christ. Subsequent to their faith in Christ. Well, some believe that this is a normative pattern, that this is how it's supposed to be for everybody, that people will speak in tongues after receiving the Holy Spirit, and these are cited as examples. Examples of receiving the Holy Spirit later with the manifestation of, of tongues. But as I mentioned to you, when we look down the road in the New Testament, whether it's Ephesians or 1 Corinthians or Romans 8 9, the Bible clearly states that after this book that is written, uh, the book of Acts, there is no such thing as a New Testament believer who does not have the Holy Spirit at the point of salvation. So what is happening here in these four passages here and why? As you might already know, the background is that this was a transitional book, and the Jews had a hard time accepting those who were outside of the Jewish community to be believers because they were very proud of the fact that God had chose them as a chosen people, as an ethnic group that were uh, unique. And they weren't unique. But when Christ began to teach them that the church included those who were outside, there were four particular groups. Of course, the Jews were one of them. The second, though, was what about the Samaritans? The Samaritans were those who were Jews uh, or children of Jews who had intermarried with those who were Gentiles. They were the Samaritans. Then you had the Gentiles. Gentiles included anybody who was not a Jew. And then you had the God-fearers. The God-fearers were those who were Gentiles who had been converted to Judaism. Those were the four groups. Jews, Samaritans, the Gentiles, and the God-fearers. Those are the four groups by which we see the examples of the Holy Spirit dramatically coming upon them, the Jews in Acts chapter 2 with Pentecost, the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, which is implied that they had an experience there, the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius, and here the God-fearers. 
And with each one of these passages, there is an apostolic witness, an apostle there to witness, and an outward manifestation of what had happened. And that way, God would be able to show them that in each of these cases, the Holy Spirit had come upon them and they would be received into the church. And it would be confirmed not by their own testimony, but by the witness of an authority, of an apostle. And so there are four different groups of people, four instances, the only instances in which the Holy Spirit comes upon the individual manifestation of some sign gift after the reception, after their belief in Christ. And subsequent to this, there is no other testimony or example of that. Acts is a transitional book. It tells us about the beginning of the church. It tells us about how God included all those who were of the world. And in the mind of the Jew, it ought to be convincing as the book of Acts is being written, saying to us, God has included all peoples from every tongue and tribe and nation into the church, whether they are a Jew, whether they are a Samaritan, whether they're a Gentile, whether a Gentile is converted to Jainism, they are all to be included in the church. Because in the Jews' mind, boy, they thought they were the chosen people simply by virtue of being a child of Abraham And in their mind's eye, even the best or the worst Jew is better than the best Gentile. So it was necessary for them to have that evidence. And we see here that evidence is given by witness of the Holy Spirit of these God-fearers in chapter 19. The reception of the Holy Spirit. And this is the very last group. The last group that manifested the speaking in tongues after reception of the Holy Spirit in a powerful way with apostolic witness because the gospel is for all. And when Peter gives testimony of what happened in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius, he tells the others in Acts chapter 11, he says, therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? See, they had a problem. They had a problem. What, what, what's happening with these Gentiles? Who was I to stand in God's way? And when they heard this, these Jews, they quieted down and glorified God, saying this, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. What a wonderful account of God's inclusion of these Old Testament saints who had come, whether it's Apollos or whether these God-fearers who had placed their faith as much as it knew about God, these Old Testament saints, and yet granted them a fuller understanding of who God was and what God had done. So too, my enthusiastic seminary friend who had taken a Nazarite vow, shortly thereafter was straightened out. He cut his hair. Remember, we would talk with him about how he would wash it when, he was, when it was long. And he funneled his energy into studying the Word of God. And he abandoned some of his misunderstandings or misapplications, and he embraced the new covenant, just as these 12 did. So what does this teach us? This teaches us, number one, no matter how much we've learned in the past, no matter how eloquent or how learned we may be like Apollos, God has so much more to teach us. 
We're always to be lifelong learners. And the joy of studying the Word of God, continually learning, continually growing, continually being able to handle the knowledge that God grants to us is an endeavor we ought to have. Secondly, we're to strive to be people who are mighty in the Scriptures, who are fervent in spirit, who speak out boldly for Christ. Thirdly, that God in His great grace has included people from all ethnic backgrounds. Anyone who turns to Christ in repentance and faith, understanding who Christ is and what He has done, who they are and what they need to do, can receive that free gift of salvation. Freedom from the penalty of sin, the eternal life that God promises and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that that might be something that all of us has received. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks, Father, for the salvation that you have so granted. In your grace, O God, you bring the word of Christ to us, just as you have to Paulos, to these God-fearers, people who followed you to the best of their knowledge. But God, we give you thanks for the gospel, which came to them and comes to us. We pray, God, that we might be witnesses desirous to know you more, that we might share of the great hope that we have within us. In Jesus' precious name, amen.